So as we've, let's kind of get back into the narrative of Philippians. As we've said before, Paul is in prison and he has just been given a gift from the Philippians who are praying for his release, but at the same time, they're putting action to their spirituality. And although they're praying for supernatural intervention, they are willing to rise up with human intervention and collect money and take it to Paul because he doesn't just need a supernatural work from God. He needs money to be able to buy food and survive prison. And so for them, there is not this dichotomy between our acts of mercy and our dependence upon the supernatural intervention of God. They're modeling something more holistic. And so they're praying for him diligently, but they also send Epaphras to him with some money to help support him in prison. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, and it reads a little differently than some of his other epistles because he's not really being inspired to address an issue in the church, he's kind of writing a thank you letter. And so in that process, he's edifying and encouraging them. And and, and where he starts out, where we've been progressing is, is in saying, not, not just let's not just read what Paul is teaching, but let's really perceive what Paul is modeling because he's modeling the reality of these things of which he goes all around preaching. And, and what he's convinced of is that the one who begins the good work will be faithful to complete. He'll be faithful to complete it within the context of individual communities. He'll be faithful to complete it within the context of individuals. And he will be faithful to complete it in terms of his intention for the cosmos. And Paul lives from this very deep conviction. He who began the work will be faithful to complete it. And then the very next thing he models is, in fact, I'm so convinced of this that the reality of my circumstances are not making its way down into the realm of my emotions and causing me to be in despair or discouragement. My circumstances are not ideal. I would rather not be in prison right now. I'd rather not be in jail. I'd rather not be under arrest. I would rather not have to hope that someone's going to bring money my way so I can eat today. I would rather be out proclaiming the gospel and strengthening the churches and continuing on with this missionary work that God has entrusted to me. And yet, none of those things are possible for me right now. This is my circumstance. However, I will still continue to rejoice because I serve a God who is whose plans are not thwarted because my circumstances are undesirable. I know that he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. And therefore, whether this results in my being executed or this results in my being released, I am confident that now as always, Christ will be honored through my body regardless of the outcome of my circumstance. So he's modeling the way this idea of God completing a good work is not a mere sentiment to Paul. It is an experienced reality that defines how he chooses to live his life and the posture that he brings to bear whenever he's then writing these letters and interacting with others. And so we've seen that modeled all throughout. And we ended last week with this idea in verse 20 is my anger, expectation, and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or death. And it's almost as though Paul wrote that last phrase, whether by life or death, and then pauses and said, and let's talk about that for just a moment. And then it gets a little odd because it almost reads as though he is he is pondering which option he is going to choose as you look through the rest of the letter it's really clear i don't think paul's communicating i get to pick but he is pondering the various outcomes that could happen and he's speculating on those so just as he's written whether by life or death 
here we pick up in verse 21 and we're going to read through verse 26 and he says this for me to live is Christ and to die is gain now if I live on in the flesh this means fruitful work for me and I don't know which one I should choose I am torn between the two I long to depart and be with Christ which is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake since I am persuaded of this I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that because of my coming to you again your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound so it's as if he says life or death and then he begins to speculate and he's like he's saying oh death there's no sting in death for Paul just as as we grow into a full maturity of our faith there is no sting in death for us now why is that well it's not because of simplistic readings of highly um, metaphorical language that's used in scripture to describe possibly the afterlife or the kingdom of God so we have kind of these images that we get from revelation as though it's just a great example of where just strictly trying to be literal really does a disservice to the scriptures because I think a lot of us still have these ideas you know whether it's the book of revelation or if it's uh, I think the newsboys you know it's like it's a big big house where there's lots and lots of food and we can play football you know or we might think it's kind of club med in the sky it's okay if you didn't have great digs on earth because you got a big mansion in glory so we're all going to kind of live in Martha's vineyard in the sky one of these days and and there'll be there'll be you know a lot of food and the streets will be paved with gold what is the author doing when he says these things is he saying that the purpose of your salvation is so that your feet get to walk on bricks of gold or is he saying the thing that you loved so much on earth that you oppressed you battled you harmed and you say sold your soul for this is the stuff we walk on this is our dirt in the kingdom of god i think he might be saying something a little more to that and so but sometimes when i say that i i, I get misunderstood as i believe there's no hope for the afterlife no i really a few years back entered into this new period of growth where I lost a lot of my fear of death and and uh, death began to lose its sting and part of that process was because I realized the things I was told heaven was like that they're, they're kind of loose interpretations of scriptures and they can be kind of confusing but I'll tell you what's not confusing it's two words and if you want to know my theology of the afterlife it is summed up in the two words we just read well maybe five words my first phrase would be i don't know i've never died i've never hung out in heaven so i just don't know but what i do know is this there is someone whose writings i trust and here's how he summed it up it's far better far better and i liked that ambiguity there's no big definitions of knowing exactly what this is all about but what we do know is that it's far better and why is it far better it's because christ is accessible in a deeper unobscured way and so there is a deeper revelation of christ and i don't want to get on a soapbox 
But this is really important because I do believe the way that we promote the evangelical gospel oftentimes presents a picture like the goal of salvation is to get to this place of eternal happiness. And our assumption is that's the goal. And we're happy. And if we think about why we're happy, it's we get to see our loved ones or we get to see our, our dogs that pass before us. I'm looking more forward to some dogs than I am to some people when I get there, I'll be honest. But, um, uh, and, and so, so we have these ideas, but what I began to realize about myself is that I didn't have a concept of heaven that was utterly dependent on Christ. There were other things I was looking forward to the afterlife for, and they had to do mainly with my own personal emotional comfort. There was not, it was not wrapped up in this passion for the unobscured presence of Jesus. But it's important that we say this here because what Paul's doing is he's not in despair. This is not some suicidal ideation where he's just wanting to get flown out of here so he can be with Jesus and not have to work or suffer anymore. That is not what is motivating him. The moment that he even ponders why death would be gain, he says it's far better because his passion is an unhindered, fullest revelation of Christ that he can possibly experience. And so for Paul, death is far better because you enter into that fuller revelation of Christ that you're already walking in right here on earth. This is not despair. This is not like the suicidal rapturists, right, that are not really looking for the victory of Christ. This life is hard, so Jesus fly me out of here. You know, that's not what he's doing. His passion is to be in the presence of Christ. And so that is his longing here. But he says, but I know in my heart, it's not time yet. Why? Because I still have work to do. And I like that perspective that as long as I draw breath, whether that's in the active involvement in ministry or that's in my final days as I'm hopefully in a resting place gathered around my family if I am still breathing it's because I have good work to do and my work is complete I get to move on to where it's far better and this is the perspective that Paul holds here as he talks about uh, his circumstance and the way his faith is empowering him to navigate these circumstances but I want to focus in on this one line this morning and really dive into what it means. The thing that frustrates me sometimes about the way we articulate our faith is we just say these sentiments. And if you ask someone, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, how do I, what does it look like if I'm doing the sentiment thing that you are telling me to do? If you're telling me just let go and let God, for example, what exactly does that look like? How am I supposed to let go today and let God? I'm not saying it's not true. I'm not saying that. But I am saying you've got to do more than just say bumper sticker things to me. This is life or death for me, and I would like to know exactly how it is I respond to these sentimentalities. And so this can be one like that. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I think that we kind of had some conceptions about what it means that to die is gain because he says it'll be far better because I'll be in the presence of Christ. But what does it mean to be characterized by being gripped by this reality that to live is Christ? Well, let's take a moment and think about that for, example, for, for a minute. It was interesting if you look up the lexicon that you can look into on, online that parses out 
the, the original languages of scripture and you look up this verse and you look at this word to live, here's what you're going to say. To live simply means to experience God's gift of life, which means there are plenty of people who live who aren't living. It's more than just having a, bio, a body that is functioning biologically with a heart that is beating and, bum, and blood that is pumping and my ability to breathe. It's more than that. It's not just to be alive, but it is to actually experience God's gift of life. In other words, if the two options are before you is just to get through and, and learn how, which, I mean, look, we are all disciples in this culture. We are discipled to be good consumers. And if you give yourself over to that vision of life, you'll mix Jesus in with that, but Jesus won't be the center. Your consumer identity will be the center. And so, and so if, if we're just doing that, that is not the same thing as having this experience where Jesus says, if you love me, I will love you. And me and my father will come. We will make our home in you and with you. And that out from the depths of your heart, there will flow an abundance of streams of living water. That's to experience God's gift of life. That is eternal life. Because remember, eternal life, that is not a chronological concept that is a, or a quantitative concept that is a quality concept. Jesus defines eternal life in, in John 17. This is eternal life that they may know you and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent. So eternal life is not a chronological thing that happens when this thing decays and I fly away. That's not eternal life. Eternal life is this moment right now that I'm experiencing in the presence of the Christ who dwells in me and fills my heart with mercy, love, and peace. And those waters can flow out of me. And hopefully my goal is that they spill onto the people around me. This, my friends, is what it means to experience God's gift of life. It's more than just existence. And Paul recognizes this. To live as Christ means to live from the awareness that Christ's identity is your identity. Or we might say it this way, to live as Christ is to live from the awareness that Christ's life is your life. The life of Christ indwells us as the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know that sounds elementary, but I want to be crystal clear in what I'm saying here this morning. I am saying that to experience the life that God offers, we have to recognize that the life of Christ indwells us as the presence of the Holy Spirit. You remember how he, 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 he blended those phrases together in chapter one, I think up in, I think it's verse 19, where he speaks through, through your prayers, prayers and the help from the Spirit of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Awareness that the life of Christ dwells in me as an actual experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. We lost a very faithful, godly man this week. You all may or may not even know who he is. He spent most of his work in academia, and so he wrote lots of higher scholarship and commentaries. And in fact, um, it's a man by the name of Gordon Fee, who we were going to quote last week, and we ran out of time. And I felt really sad that I missed that quote and found out Monday or Tuesday of this week he passed away. Uh, he, he wrote one of the commentaries that I've been reading and studying in my preparation. In fact, honestly, the most helpful 
and most encouraging commentary that I've been reading is the one written by Gordon Fee. And he was a, he was a, he was a Pentecostal scholar uh, of, of, of Paul. And so here's one of the things he writes in his summary of his academic study of Paul. One reads Paul poorly, who does not recognize that for him, the presence of the Spirit as an experienced and living reality was the crucial matter of the Christian life from beginning to end. Let's do it one more time. One reads Paul poorly who does not recognize that for him, the presence of the Spirit as an experienced and living reality was the crucial matter of the Christian life from beginning to end. We have to realize we're taking time to read Paul and we have to understand that Paul is not an architect of a religion. He is bearing witness to an experience. And, and without tasting that experience, it is hard to read and understand Paul. It's like I said at the beginning of this series, if Paul sent us a resume and wanted to offer to be a guest speaker in the church and I brought it before the elder board, I don't know if I'd even bring it to the elder board. I'd be like, uh, no way. What do you mean? Well, this guy wants to speak at our church. What's his story? Well, he was a scholar of religion and then he claims that Jesus appeared and knocked him off his donkey and, and that Jesus spoke to him and that ironically, the people around him couldn't discern what Jesus was saying. Only Paul could hear it. And he was commissioned. And then after that, he turns blind. And once he gets healed, he doesn't go to the Christian school, go to the Christian scholars or go to the Christian leadership. He claims he went to the desert where the spirit taught him. And then after that time, he decided to come back with this revelation that the Jewish Messiah is not just for the Jews, he's for everyone. Um, yeah, no, thank you. Next, because Paul doesn't make sense unless you've experienced the spirit that transformed Paul. Just like the way of Jesus cannot be put under a microscope, you can't understand it until you walk the way of Jesus. It's the only way that actual spiritual learning takes place. So it's really important to recognize what Paul is doing here is he is bearing witness to an experience that he says is available to everyone. Therefore, my premise today, as we uh, look at this passage and think about it a little more is this. Growing faithfulness to the internal leading of the Holy Spirit is essential for living a life of faithfulness to Jesus. Growing faithfulness to the internal leading of the Holy Spirit is essential for living a life of faithfulness to Jesus. And you say, well, of course you're gonna say that. We've heard your story. You grew up Pentecostal charismatic. I'm not talking about Pentecostalism and I'm not talking about charismatic experiences. In fact, I'm not talking about the, the problem with, with the culture in which I grew up is we relegated the power of God to what happens during church meetings. You know, it wasn't, we weren't taught to lean on the Holy Spirit instead of being unkind to our spouse, for example. That's where you need the Spirit. Not for goosebumps during the service, but when you're out and about and you're in your place of weakness and the flesh is about to overcome and you cry out, Lord, don't forsake me, I need you. And the Holy Spirit intervenes and empowers you to act decent. That's, that's one of the primary benefits of folks that follow the leading of the Spirit is hopefully they become less jerky than they were the day before and, and they're becoming more decent. Wow, that's a low vision. I'm sorry, I know, I'm a man of micro vision. I've never pretended to be a man of macro vision. I'm glad that there are people out there being called by God to change the nations. I just wanna change my attitude whenever I'm inconvenienced in my home. 
I want to start right there. That's where I want to see Jesus present. That's where I want to see the Holy Spirit come down and manifest himself is in those moments. So I'm not talking, now, at the same time, I am enormously grateful for my upbringing in, in, in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. I do believe that I was cultivated and given um, an advantage in that I entered this faith with the expectation of an experience, not simply as a call to conform to a moral system. That came later, and I eventually abandoned the spirit for that and messed my life up and then came crawling back, and God put a robe around me and a ring on my finger and shoes on my feet, thank God. But I do appreciate that because that is what I'm talking about. It's the expectation that Christians are people who live life with God. It, it should, that should not be controversial. But that means that it's beyond just reading books and even doing Bible studies. It's that information becoming a piece of the puzzle that transforms my mind. But ultimately, you know, when was the last time you were in an argument with your uh, your partner, for example, and you know that dreadful moment when you think, you realize, oops, I might be wrong here. It's a horrible moment. And uh, because rarely what you want to, you don't want to say, oh, let's stop here. I think I was wrong. Now, I do that, but I've walked with the Lord many years. Uh, in fact, I just did that this week, did I not? 48 hours after I was a jerk. That was a turnaround time. It took me 48 hours before I was finally in the place that I would come back because 48 hours previous, I was pretty sure I was the righteous persecuted one. <laughs> pretty darn sure. Within 48 hours of creating some space for the Holy Spirit to interject over my emotions, I was able to recognize, ah, man, I think I missed it on that one. And that's what it is to walk in the spirit in his living life where we're learning how to respond to the inner lucidity of the voice of the spirit and respond as he leads and he guides. Now, let's look at this idea, and this is what we're going to do for the rest of our moments together. I want to look at some places in Paul and some places in Jesus. And I really want us to process this information and synthesize it and at the end of that synthesizing, you don't have to agree with me, but you do need to be in a place where you can articulate for yourself what you believe it means. So here's something that's quite surprising. Galatians chapter 1. It's in your notes, and it'll also be up on the overhead. Galatians chapter 1 says, uh, Paul. this is Paul, again, Paul not architecting a religion, but bearing witness to an experience. And here's what he says. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I intensely persecuted God's church and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries among my people because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. In other words, he got religion really well. Verse 15, but when God, thank you, Adam, for highlighting the but God phrases throughout the scriptures, but when God, who from my mother's womb set me apart and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I could preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Now look at that idea 
found in verse 16. Again, we are not at church that says you have to conform to all of our nuances of doctrine in order to belong. We are not a church that says you're less spiritual unless you adopt all the views of the senior pastor. That is not where we are. And so I am not suggesting that you have to come up with the same conclusions I've come up with, but I am imploring you, take verse 16, put it in your theological pipe, smoke it really well, really enter into the implications of what Paul is saying. This word reveal means to uncover. And this word, um, uh, another, and if you look in your notes here, it means to uncover or to reveal. And look at this, what the word studies tells us. It means revealing what is what? Hidden. Revealing what is hidden. Now hang with me as we go through Paul's logic here. This word, and yes, I went nerdy enough to look up the word in, and it actually means properly inside or within, from the inside, which is, of course, what in means. What's your point, Artie? Take those concepts together. The way Paul bears witness to becoming a Christian is not hearing an external message with a steps of what to do at the end of it. And if you do these things, then you will apprehend salvation, which is some way the way we're told. Paul's language here is he's saying there was a time when God chose to reveal what was hidden within. That's what he's saying. There was a time and place when God was pleased to reveal what was hidden within. Now think about the implications of that. It means until it was revealed to Paul, he lived a life as though it wasn't true because he was ignorant of it. He was in the dark. And somewhere along that journey, and who knows in the mind of God what all God used, there came to this place of crescendo of revelation where God opened his eyes, which I think is another reason why it's really important to see in Paul's narrative. At the very beginning, you have this visual demonstration of what was going on with Paul. When he sees the light, what happens? Remember, he's blinded. Then he goes to another Christian brother, and he's prayed for, and the, and the blinders fall off. Well, that's kind of the imagery that he's talking about here, that there was a time and place when God chose to reveal what was hidden within. In fact, it goes along with his whole interpretation of his ministry. You remember, we saw it in Colossians, that there's been a mystery that's been hidden for the ages, but now in the fullness of time, it has been revealed. What is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then the way he bears witness to his salvation isn't was I was going on a, on a bad road and, and I was, you know, as a mafioso and did all kinds of terrible things. And then someone gave me a track or whatever, or I went to a public restroom and already had left a track on the toilet paper roll and I read it and I came to the Lord. These things are not his testimony. He says, no, I was going along zealous for my religion, misguided, and I was intercepted by God and he revealed what's been hidden with me. He revealed what was already hidden within me, which is Christ. He revealed the Son in me. So then a few verses later in Galatians 2.20, this is how he articulates that ongoing experience of what it means to walk with Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ, and, no, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. One more time, memorize, see, see that phrase. 
and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, regardless of your background, regardless of your denomination, what I want to implore you to do is if you're a journal person, get a journal out. If journaling makes you uncomfortable, you can dictate into a voice memo. If that makes you uncomfortable, make your own private video journal and video your articulation of your beliefs. But however you do it, or even better, just take someone for coffee or a Reuben and talk about it. But however you choose to do it, take time to articulate your understanding of what it means that Christ lives in you. You don't have to adopt my perspective, but you do have to have an understanding of what that means because we are not purveyors of an ideology. We experience a life and we're, pro we're proclaimers of a liberation that has taken place as experienced in our life and in our hearts. And so if we're going to do that, it is not enough for you to be aware of the doctrinal approach to people who have systematized um, the faith of Jesus. You have to know, articulate your experience of that. What does that mean? Like, what did it mean this week that you were made aware of the truth that Christ lives in you? You no longer live, but the life you now live in your body, you live by faith in the Son of God. Christ is the one living in you. What does this mean? Can you point to it? Can you see evidence of it? Because my friends, this is the thing we're talking about. We are not talking about buttressing the traditions and the doctrines of men. We're talking about learning how to live from the experience. Christ is in me as the hope of glory. Let's walk this thing out together and be the body of Christ on earth and continue his program of reconciliation and redemption of the cosmos. Let's be faithful to our leg of the journey in our geography and in our generation. And we do that by being moved by the spirit of the life of Christ that lives from within. So take some time this week to articulate your understanding of what it means that Christ lives in you because the reason why I highlight that is this. Talk to folks and it's almost as if this is just read as a metaphor for I said the sinner's prayer. It's a metaphorical way of explaining the fact that you mentally changed and became converted to the ideology of Christianity. Well, good for you. I'm glad for that. I did the same thing too. But that's not what I'm talking about. I don't think that's what this is talking about. It's not about when I can remember my spiritual birth date. It's about whether or not I'm bearing witness to the presence of the living Christ today, right here in this moment. So take time. Have you been duped into just thinking of that as a metaphor and not really asking yourself the heart of Christ? the harder questions of, do I live this way? Do I live as though Christ is my contemporary with me? Or is my relationship with Christ filtered and mediated through my spiritual authority and doctrines that have been layered on top to explain someone else's experience to me? That's an important question for you. You have to wrestle with that because the goal is to have the same experience except for it not look like Paul because you're you. What does it look like for Christ 
to live in your temperament, with your experiences, with your trauma, with your joys, with your passions, with your longings. What does Christ look like when he's manifested through the diadem of your complex temperament and personality? That's what we're waiting for. Not a regurgitation of someone else's experience, but you showing up and representing Christ as he has been faithful to you. So we have to articulate what we mean by this. Here's another one that's great. It's so black and white that it's astonishing to me that we get this so wrong. The number of marriages that have been harmed by going to Ephesians 5 and talking about wives submitting to your husbands. Folks, don't get me started or I will ignore this timer, but I'm gonna set that aside for a minute. But I want us to go back and really look at that passage and look at what Paul clearly, plainly says. My friends, the marriage passages are not about your marriage. They're not about, a t- it's not about tips, more love and respect, and you'll be happy, happy, happy. Paul plainly says that's not what he's doing. So let's take a look at it. Ephesians chapter five, verses 28 through 32. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church. Since we are members of his body for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, granted, I understand the misunderstanding, but let's just let Paul continue speaking. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and his church. This is not a teaching about marriage. It's using marriage as a metaphor to help you understand your experience of salvation in Christ. You have become one with him. He takes care of you and he nourishes you. And now there is no reason for you to pray, God, come near. Why? Because he's always near as the breath in your lungs because you, because he left his father and he joined himself to his bride, to his body. That's the metaphor. That's the Christian experience. It is not just an ideological conversion any more than a, than, than a successful marriage. It's just some kind of ideological conversion to the concept of a person as my wife. And the proof that I can, that I can give you is I can go back years back to where the ceremony happened to where, and I've got witnesses that signed a piece of paper and the state of Oklahoma acknowledges this piece of paper. All that is that means that we have a marriage. No, it doesn't. It means you went through a ritual of a marriage ceremony. It doesn't mean that you understood and comprehended you were being joined to that person and now you live every day defined by your oneness with that other person. My friends, this is Christian conversion. It is not an ideological conversion to a religion. It is this recognition that you are now one with Christ. He nurtures you, he takes care of you, and this is a profound mystery. But now you've got this double metaphor working for on one hand, you're so intimate with him that you are the bride of Christ. On the other hand, your showing up is so important that you're also called the body of Christ. 
You are the way Christ's ministry continues in your geography and in your generation. But you will never get around to living from that identity unless you understand this mystery right here, which is God dwells inside of you. The life of Christ has been made one with you. Two becoming one is the image of Christ in me, spirituality. Thus, to live is Christ. That's the vision. It's so much better than the other thing. Now, before we close, my timer has gone out and they're firing up the pizza ovens. But I want to take a quick glance of how Jesus articulated this same idea. John 14, verses 14 through 20, and then we're going to flip the page and look at John 15, 5 through 11. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it does not see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be what? In you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because... I live, you will live too. Why? Because they are one with him. On that day, you will know, look at this phrase, that I am in my father, you are in me, and I am in you. Now think about the logic of those three statements and let's bring it to its conclusion. I am in my father, you are in me, I am in you, thus you are in the Father. There's a reality of your life, your immaterial life that exists at one with the Father heart of God. You're already there. You're on a journey of revealing that, but you're not on a journey of becoming that. That's what you've already become. You are one with him. He is in you. You are in him. He's one with the father. You are one with the father. John 15, five through 11. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. I don't think this is a metaphor for an afterlife hell. This is what our life looks like if we live anti-Christ. You'll burn your life down if you live if you live anti-Christ. If you don't believe me, try it for a week. Let me know how it goes. Verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Again, this is not a a barter. This is not an exchange. It simply says, follow the way of Jesus, and you'll know what he's talking about. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be complete. Now, look at that phrase in verse 9. You are loved by Christ just as Christ is loved by the Father. That's what he says. 
the question that you have to wrestle with is, do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ's love for you is equal to the Father's love for the Son? Because until you do, you will be severely limited in the way you express that love to the people around you. But once you do, you'll be able, you'll be unable to deny it, even in the face of those who are undeserving. You're supposed to only tell stories in which you're not the hero. It's a criticism of pastors that most of them do the opposite. But I'm pretty sure over eight years, the track record of uncomfortable vulnerability that I've wandered into from this stage speaks for itself. So I am going to tell a more positive story. And it just came to me this morning as I was meditating one more time over this passage and drinking my coffee and sitting with my dog. And I realized there is a, there is a, a friendship that I have. And, and this person in my mind has utterly betrayed me. And it wasn't just a casual friendship. It was, it was, a, it was, it was, a, it was a deep brotherhood. I, I shared my heart and soul and vice versa. And, and something happened that was very shocking. And to the extent that in all vulnerability, I, I don't see the possibility of us having a friendship in the future. Uh, there would have to be extensive work. We might even have to go to couples counseling for that to happen because this sense of mutual betrayal went back and forth and it runs so deep. And yet I realized something. I still had the same level of love in my heart for that man as I had back when we were friends. This is the first time in my life that I've ever been cognizant of that experience. And I even tested it, tried to think of scenarios. And it's not because I'm choosing to love him. It, it is almost as if there's love for him still emulating from my soul, whether I want it to or not. Now, again, I'm being honest with you. We're not gonna be buying matching sweaters and doing fall pictures. That's not gonna happen. And in all likelihood, we won't speak with any comfort to one another until we are on the other side and in eternity where it's far better. That's the realist. And yet, so, so I know there's a complication of trust that would have to be restored. And I don't you know, know all the ins and outs of how that would get transversed. But my point is, even though that lack of trust has made it unable for us to continue on in friendship, that love is still right here. And I promise you, I am petty and vindictive. It is not flowing from Artie's heart. It bears witness to me that Christ is right here. The one who said, turn the other cheek, the one who was willing to lay down his life and say, forgive them to the people that were taking his life from him. I, it bore witness right here. It's, it's living here. Not as often present as I wish that it was, but hopefully I'll get there. But that's what happens to us. And that flows out of this revelation that my life, my identity is I am one who is loved by Christ the way Christ is loved by God. So as we close and the worship team comes forward, I'd like to read you a quote from Michael Wells. He said this, we are not created to live independently of him. That brings insanity. It is only in humble dependence upon the creator that mind and emotions enter into soundness and trustworthiness. Mike was a, a spiritual teacher and also a counselor. 
as well. And I love the way he articulates this very active, livable version of the Christian faith. Once again, growing faithfulness to the internal leading of the Holy Spirit is essential for living a life of faithfulness to Jesus. It's non-negotiable. So take time this week to articulate your understanding of what it means that Christ lives in you. And then I would implore you, return to the place of prayer, not as a grocery list, not as a Christmas list, not as a wish list, but return to prayer as a form of meditation and affirm Christ's life in you at the start of every day. If you all stand with me as we get ready to worship and the prayer team will be here and the communion elements are available as you just take a moment to interact with the Holy Spirit, I would like to put up on the overhead a prayer that if you want to, you could begin with. I don't honestly don't pray this every day because at some point this prayer started praying me and it just became part of who I am. And so maybe the same will happen for you. So we're going to close in looking at this prayer together. It's on the overhead. I'm going to pray it aloud and then maybe close us in, in, in prayer. And if you want to, in your heart, pray it with me. If you want to recite it aloud, you're welcome to do that. But consider making this a part of the rhythm of your life. This day, Lord, I thank you that I am in you and you are in me. Thank you that no matter how I feel, I abide in you. Thank you, Lord, that it is not a position that I must struggle to maintain for you have put me there. This moment is all I will be concerned for. I accept my position of abiding with joy. Jesus, thank you that we are in you and you are in us through no decision of our own, but rather it was a gift, a gift that you chose to freely lavish upon us. We ask that we might have the faith to actually believe that something is too good to be true is in fact true. And Lord, I, I really can't say to how successful I'm going to be in my aspirations this afternoon, but I don't really have this afternoon. What I have is right now, in this moment, and in this moment, I am overwhelmingly aware you are in me and I am in you. And I can only hope and pray for the grace to continue to believe that when future moments arrive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.